17, a little bit warmer tomorrow, partly sunny, high of 45. And uh, as we get to Friday, it'll be sunny and almost 60. This is Radio Catskill. We're your community radio station. Time now for Trailer Talk. Stay tuned. Support comes from Wayne Memorial Hospital, a certified primary stroke center and level four trauma center. Wayne Memorial also opened a cardiac cath lab in 2016 and celebrates its centennial this year. WMH.org. Support for WJFF Radio Catskill comes from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York. RiverReporter.com. And from listener donations at WJFFRadio.org. Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. Our task must be to free ourselves by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature and its beauty. Albert Einstein. I'm Sabrina, and I want to welcome you all to my virtual kitchen table of my travel trailer, and I'm very excited to introduce you to Todd Friedman, who is my neighbor. I am in Liberty, New York, in the Catskills, and Todd is in Parksville, but he's really right around the corner, and it's a delight for me to introduce Todd and I want to share that it also makes me feel so good to know that I have a neighbor who is providing sanctuary for animals. Todd is the founder of Arthur's Acres Animal Sanctuary, and he shares that kindness, positivity, and compassion for all living beings is the mission that he has been charged with. Arthur's Acres Animal Sanctuary is a pig rescue. So, Todd, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So let's start with how did this evolve? I mean, I've always been an animal lover. Uh, Even as a kid, I've always really... I felt like a special connection to animals and, you know, and growing up, I always was drawn to animals and that's where I felt most at home, you know, with animals and always having a pet. And, um, I found myself owning a print shop in New Jersey and, um, I was doing that for 10 years and I was just getting, you know, I was ready to change my life. Something was about, it wasn't right. And I started volunteering at a sanctuary um, in upstate New York. And um, I started doing it like once a month. Then I started doing it, you know, twice a month. Then I started doing it, you know, once, uh, once on the weekends. And I started doing it every weekend, Saturday and Sunday. Um, I did that for two years. And, and in doing that in the process, I just realized that, you know, this is what I want to do. And um, I don't want to, um, do anything else. So I'm sorry. Do you hear that in the background? I do. What is that? Todd, could you get the food away from the cat? The cats are eating dog food. <laughs> so I'm sorry about that. But wait a minute. I just want to insert here that I know because of your incredibly delightful and moving videos, you, you take us right into your home and into the barn and onto the land of Arthur's acres. So I know that you have a couple of pigs that live in your house. There's three right now. There's, there's, there's Wilbur, there's Joaquin and princess in the kitchen. And then I think we have four cats in here right now and a dog. So there's, there's a couple of, uh, so there's Joaquin right there. And doesn't Joaquin have a kind of a reputation? Is he a little He's a brat. Yeah, he's a brat, (laughs) but he's tiny. And there's princess in the kitchen. Will you share the story of princess with us? Yeah, sure. So princess, uh, so I just want to show you. So Wilbur's right on the couch next to me. And Wilbur. Yeah. So please introduce us to your companions, your family, and my neighbors. Well, they're my family. So Wilbur, unfortunately, was dumped at a, uh, a animal shelter in New York City. Now, uh, there is this belief that a micro pig or teacup pig exists where you buy a pig and it's 30 pounds and it's put in your pocketbook. It does not exist. There's no such thing of it, but these breeders keep telling people there are. So there's an epidemic that people are buying pigs and and they get too big and then they dump them. And so a lot of our animals are from that. So Wilbur was dumped in New York City as, you know, a young pig because he started getting bigger and 
you're not allowed to have pigs in New York City. So that was not a great idea or a great decision on their part anyway. So we got him from New York City Shelter. And how big is he at this point? He's probably about 160, right, Bubus? You're about 160, 180? <laughs> oh, it depends on before or after lunch. And uh, right? I know that our listeners can't see what I'm seeing right now, but there they are in your living room with pillows and blankets. Oh, yeah. You know, they kind of make themselves at home. They kind of decide, you know, Wilbur's in the house because he was my first pop belly. He was really lonely in the barn. He only spent one night in the barn and it was terrible. Princess, who we rescued from a horrible breeding situation in uh, New Jersey and she was being bred basically to death. She was kept in like a four by six completely dark stall. Male pigs were thrown into her until she was pregnant in with her and then their gestation period is short. So it's three months, three weeks and three days. So every four months they get her pregnant and she's on the smaller side. So she's 90 pounds, which is pretty much the lightest you'll see a healthy pig. So she's the smallest pig that you would see that actually is considered a small, they call them mini pigs because they're smaller than farm pigs. She was a mess when um, I got a call by another sanctuary rancher over Lax, New Jersey, and they asked me to take a piglet. They said, you know, it's the only piglet out of a litter that survived. They called me and we're nursing her. I said, you know, I'm just starting out. I can't nurse an animal over three hours. I'm trying to do everything here. And then usually I, I'm able to say no and I'm able to block it out and not be depressed for the rest of the day. But I called my friend back and I said, well, what's up with the mother? You know, will they give up the mother? She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I could take a mother, you know, you know, I could take a mother. And she's like, well, let me find out. She, he hasn't given her up in 10 years. There's a cat. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't given her up in 10 years. He's made a lot of money off her and I doubt he'll let her go. I said, we'll find out. And he decided that he would do it, which is so weird. I don't even know why I asked about the mother, you know, it was just random, you know? And she came here and it took, uh, you know, she was a mess. She's blind because she never saw the light of day for 10 years. She's skittish because she was obviously beaten. They called her grandma. If you go near her, she's very skittish, but incredibly sweet. It took about three or four months for her to come up to me and be comfortable with me. And then um, she was living at the barn because she liked very quiet situations. And then... One day she walked up the house, pushed in the door and moved in. And that was it. You know, I kind of like if they can make their way up here and they don't have accidents in the house because they're smart. You know, they are instantly potty trained. They don't peer poop where they sleep. They're smarter than dogs. They're the fourth smartest animal where a dog is 14. So they're instantly potty trained. And then Joaquin, a couple of weeks ago, made his way up the stairs, up the ramp. We have ramps to come up to the house. And he just pushed his way in during the day, took a nap during lunch one day and then goes out and comes and just, you know, he's trying to fit in with these guys and it's all good. You know, as long as they don't, I wouldn't say tear apart the house because they kind of um, rearrange things. They don't do real damage. A lot of blankets everywhere. Seems that they like to bury and burrow. They burrow. They, they, you know, they'll nest. And so they do that. And so they're everywhere. You know, Wilbur moved on to the couch and he was hiding being on the couch for a long time. So, well, I didn't know he was on the couch, so he'd go to, I'd go to sleep, and then he'd be on the couch, and then he'd come down. He, he wouldn't be on the couch. I'd never see him on the couch. And then my neighbor stopped by and was looking for me, looked in my window, and she says, oh, that's cute. Wilbur's on the couch. I said, what? <laughs> so he, apparently, he was, as soon as I left, he'd go on the couch. So now he just feels comfortable on the couch. So we end up sitting on the floor watching TV while he takes over the whole couch. But Okay, so Todd, what I want to know is what happens if King Carl <laughs> or Morty makes their way up that ramp into your home we'll have to take out some couches and chairs and you know i I would have them all into the house if i wanted to if if that could happen you know i'm telling you i would move into the barn i mean it's i'm happiest when i'm with pigs and so it's it's wonderful you know i I would bring them all to the house i mean carl i don't know if he'd get through the front door but we might (laughs) have how much does carl weigh now i've met carl he's huge he's 950 pounds and we had a change unfortunately the barn that burnt down before it burned down we had it redone we had it change the doorways because he was too tall so he's four feet high incredible he is a tall pig he's a giant he's he's about seven feet long and about 950 pounds but and the sweetest animal here he's literally the only pig or animal i would take an apple and put in his mouth and not risk losing fingers he would chew around your fingers like the most gentle you know, the gentle giant, he, he's like the definition of the gentle giant. And um, how old is King Carl? He's 12. And unfortunately, their lifespan is only 12 to 15 in a good situation. Now, we rescued him from a breeding situation where they were just going to dump him because he was done being the male on the breeding facility. And, and he never saw the outside. Pig. He is a farm pig. He never saw the light of day as well. So he's blind. 
you know, his optical nerve is too weak and he can't see. And he's about 85% deaf and he can get around the whole farm, go wherever he wants. Uh, they can smell five feet underground. So they are incredibly uh, resourceful. He doesn't bump into walls. If you didn't know him, you would have no idea that he's deaf and blind. And how long has he been with you? Over a year, and he's thriving. You know, we have him on a really balanced diet with fruits, vegetables, and grains, and he gets a large amount of CBD oil every day. So we believe in alternative therapies as well as Eastern and Western therapies. So everyone here, uh, if there's issues with them, they'll receive acupuncture, they'll receive Reiki, chiropractic care, laser therapy, uh, CBD oil and nutrients and other, um, we do like turmeric and stuff like that. And we do red light therapy here. So we do everything, you know, okay, anything I'm coming that over, Todd, bring I, it I on, bring need, it on. <laughs> I may need some treatments myself. <laughs> they, you know, the chiropractor comes once a month. You know, the Reiki person comes once a week. We'll do it whatever we can, because the problem is, is these animals, there's no research. So it's really the sanctuaries that are doing groundbreaking work on just trial and error because there's no money in it. You know, when you take a farm pig or, you know, and take them to a normal farm vet, you know, if they have more than a sniffle, they'll be like, just call them. And call means kill. So just kill them. There's no reason to keep them alive. You wouldn't spend money in them. And you'll see that when I we take our pigs to Cornell. We use a local vet, Catskill. He's wonderful. He really takes care of us. But in large situations, in large, he doesn't handle uh, on-site. Like if they, we can't take a farm pig to him. So any kind of surgery, a farm pig or major surgery, they go to Cornell. And when I first started going to Cornell about and five so years ago. Cornell is in Ithaca and it's in Cornell Ithaca, and University it's huge. Veterinary Center. And they're amazing, probably one of the best in the world. And so when we bring an animal there, and I've been going there for five years, you know, you go in there and you'd see farm, farm, farm. And that means breeders, dairies, meat, farm, you know, because they have all where they came from on the stalls. And so it was like 80%, you know, where you'd see, you know, dairy, meat, blah, blah. And now you go and it's like 50%, sanctuary, 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 sanctuary. So we're changing the world. And it's really wonderful. It is, Todd. So how do you want to see the world change? And included in that is please share with us what you have experienced living with pigs. Well, my dream would be to be uh, unemployed, to not be needed, where the world stopped eating meat because it's not an efficient, healthy, or any food. You know, there's misconceptions of all these new labels of, you know, um, farm to table. You know, and our facility was a farm-to-table facility so before we that. took it over. And so farm-to-table was like, oh, the animals are raised and they are um, humanely slaughtered. That's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as humane slaughter. Right. It or doesn't that exist. Term, Todd, happy meat, I've heard. Happy meat. They all die in the same slaughterhouse. Now, we find bodies here literally every day and the way he used to kill them here. Now, this is a backyard butcher. This is a farm-to-table facility. They're hammer holes in the head. So the farm that has now become Arthur's Acres Animal Sanctuary was what? A slaughterhouse. You've described that you were... You had the printing business, you left that, you began working with animal sanctuaries, and then you founded your own. And when did you found Arthur's Acres, and what led you to be located where you are right now in Parksville, New York? You know, I was working at another sanctuary, and it just became time that I, w- I wanted to move on and do something else uh, with animals, whether it was my own or work somewhere else or di- in a different aspect of what I was doing. And so it was like a pipe dream. I'd be on Zillow and other real estate sites, and this property came up because I was looking at stuff, nothing really fit in 2018, in August, I believe it was. And so I um, I worked with this real estate agent before, so I set up an appointment to see the property. It was about an hour away from where I was. And he was running late, so he messaged me. He goes, I'm running late, but you can go on the property. They've left. There's no one there. You can walk around and do whatever you want to do. So I'm walking around. I get on the property. I'm with my friend Carrie, and she uh, we see a rooster run by. And then we see a peacock. We're like, that's weird. There's no one here. Why is there animals here? The real estate agent got there, and he said, I said, you know, we're seeing animals. He's like, oh, they said there might be some animals that were left behind. I said, what? He goes, yeah, maybe a horse, maybe a pig. I don't know. He said something about that. I said, what? And I walked away from him. He's like, where are you going? I said, I'm going to find the animals. So the place was horrible. There was death everywhere. There was dead animals, like chickens laying underneath, you know, just trying to get shelter. And they just died of starvation and heat exhaustion. You could see bones everywhere. And so I walked into a hallway. I heard a noise and I heard the sound of a pig. And I, I walked in this hallway that was riddled with flies and there was 
there was water with black stuff in it and, you know, his food was maggot covered. And I see a pig, the most beautiful pig I've ever seen in my life, obviously. And so I just looked at him. I just said, uh, you're, you're, uh, you're coming with me. We're together forever now, man. And what and pig is this? This is Arthur from Arthur's Acre. So now they always tell me their name. So that wasn't like a thought process. I looked at him. I said, you're Arthur. And my grandfather, who was my step-grandfather, was Arthur. And I had an incredible bond with him. And he wasn't my real grandfather. And he didn't really have to be as amazing as he was to me. But he was. He was my – I adored him. And it literally just came to me in that second. And I called him Arthur right away. And so the real estate agent's like, oh, pig. I'm like, yeah, I'm taking this pig. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, get in touch with the owner and tell him I'm taking the pig, whether he likes it or not. Now, you can't just take a pig because in it's a federal offense to steal a pig, an animal. That's being raised for meat. If you steal someone's dog, it's not the same thing. It's like a slap on the wrist. But you steal, it's a federal offense to steal an animal from a, a facility, a meat facility. So he got in touch with me, agreed to surrender him, and – the gun arrest is history. We went back and forth, uh, you know, negotiating on the property. And, and I was nervous because I saw like how much work this place needed. It was a mess. You know, it was, it was an absolute mess. I took Arthur to a friend of mine, sanctuary, uh, Mike Sturr in New Jersey. And I say, and I, and I, as I had him, like, could you babysit a pig? He's like, sure. How many people are going to say, yeah, yeah, I'll babysit your pig. And so Mike took amazing care of him. And at that time, my dad had a quadruple bypass. I was driving home from the hospital. It was like, a month and a half later and I hadn't heard from them in weeks and uh, I get a text which was weird because you would think he would call and said oh you got the property I said wow I probably should get some money now <laughs> <laughs> well so Todd thank you for sharing this about how you ended up in Parksville New York and the Sullivan County Catskills and the inspiration that Arthur the pig who your sanctuary is named after has given you you're a very new sanctuary two years said, old right? Just two years old. So what is it now that you have your own sanctuary? And how many, how many pigs do you have in the sanctuary at this? Uh, we have 25 on site. We have one that's coming to us in a couple of weeks, a baby. And we're always working on new rescues. We're building a new barn right now because our barn burnt down last year. So we're in the process of finalizing that. We have 50 animals here total. We have chickens, ducks, cats, and a dog. So we have 50 plus animals at any one time. We grew a lot. You know, it goes in spurts where we don't take in animals because we are working on, we got to get this barn built, you know, and we'll never take an animal in that jeopardizes the animals we are already cared for. So financially, physically, we cannot take an animal in that's going to jeopardize the care that we are giving other animals. So right now it's just me and I have someone help me, a special needs person that lives here, Todd, He's also Todd, Todd too. Right. Um, and he's wonderful and he lives on the property and he helps me out and we have some volunteers, but it's basically me and him from day to day. What have you discovered in having your sanctuary in terms of a possible transformation of a person who is exposed to the education you provide and with their relationships with some of the animals that are now the residents of the sanctuary? Well, I get messages every day multiple times a day that people have changed the way they eat because of, of me showcasing them, whether it's online, whether them visiting in person, but showcasing their individual personalities. You know, I put a video out every day. I put a picture out every day and I go live almost every day. So people see the interactions. So um, my education basically stems from showing them that they have individual personalities. The animals want to live, you know, whether it's a chicken, whether it's a pig, we focus on pigs because I feel it's really important to focus on very specific so we can really further the, the lifespan of these animals and quality of life for them. They're just incredible. They're as smart as a four-year-old child. They're the four smartest animal on the planet. They love, they know their names. We have a video that went viral and has millions of views because I literally called a pig by her name. She couldn't see me. She's around the corner. There was, you know, 15 pigs feeding in a field. And I said, Katniss, Katniss. She came around the corner herself and came to me. It went viral. It blows my mind that people are so 
surprised that a pig knows their name. They're brilliant. We do enrichment with them. We have paintings in their stalls. We play music 24 hours a day for them because it's like locking. It would be like putting a four-year-old kid in, in a stall with no stimulation. They would go crazy. So we're, we, they like stimulation. They love, they grieve when someone passes. It's beautiful. They're just, they're incredibly intelligent, smart, beautiful, loving animals. So somebody might say, but there's so much other suffering. So how do you frame it for people who come to you either virtually or in person? I mean, I believe the world should be vegan. I don't believe that anything needs to suffer for our existence. That's, that's a, a, a scam. We're not cavemen anymore. Um, our bodies aren't built to process meat or dairy. And, but these marketing companies sell you that you need it. You know, the whole calcium myth with cows and stuff like that. It's all just a big myth. Well, I think, you know, I, I talk about peace begins with me, peace begins with you, peace begins on your plate. I talk about that all the time, you know, and so it's just the peace. And, and with an animal, you know, yeah. that can really, their payback is loving you unconditionally, you know, and so I don't need anything from them. I just want to take care of them because I feel that they have a voice. It's not being heard. I hate when people say they're voiceless. They're not voiceless in any way, shape or form. They just need to people to listen because you've come here at four o'clock during feeding time you'll know that they're not voiceless oh, right. but, that they um, have opinions and needs they, and as you said they're individuals and uh, people there needs to be people like me who who fight for their rights to live without without being tortured we have six pigs here that were being burned for medical testing so their backs have 18 burns on them which they took stainless steel rods and burned their backs 18 times unnecessary in today's scientific and technological world, but it still happens. And so we need to fight for them, whether it's being slaughtered in a truck, you know, they can transport a pig to slaughter for 36 hours without food or water. And that's legal. And the points that you're bringing up are so important because it's, it's the way that we treat them also reflects on the way we treat each other. I mean, that there is not a separation. Oh, no, not at all. I mean, it's just, to be, you, you, you need to have compassion for everything, you know, whether it's a pig, whether it's a yeah. person, whether it's a tree, you know, it just, you know, it's just our compassion has dissipated incredibly lately. How has the pandemic impacted you since before the pandemic, you would have educational tours and visits and uh, those kinds of things. So I'm just wondering if you can address what your sanctuary and sanctuaries face during COVID-19. Well, I mean, financially is the biggest part of it. You know, people are losing their jobs at, you know, a record number. It's crazy. And I feel terrible, but we are a nonprofit. We don't take, there's no one that takes a salary. You know, we survive off of donations alone. And so it's hard because we're asking for donations to help feed and care for these animals when people are out there starving themselves. They're losing their jobs. They're losing their homes. They're losing their, their automobiles. You know, they, they can't pay medical bills, but we still need to survive as well. And we have wonderful people that do it, but people drop out every day and you can't get mad because I, and I always say people are like, I'm so sorry. I'm like, do not apologize. Take care of yourself, you know? And so, um, you know, we do tours. We stopped doing tours. We started again, then we stopped again because it started getting bad. So tours is, is one way we generate income. And we never, it's a suggested donation. If you can't afford not to come, we don't want that to be the reason you don't come because I want everybody to come here and be educated. So the upswing is that I go live almost every day. I go live six days a week. And that I'll go live on Instagram and Facebook at the same time. So I can educate people that way. So my main thing is to educate and get the message out there of compassion. Yes, and Todd, you do that so well. I have to say that for me, it's this incredible reality to tune into your live feeds, to your videos, and to follow the lives of the animals on the farm, your pig family, animal family on the farm. And I think one of the recent ones that really struck me is this relationship between Louie and Marty. <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. It gets better. You got a second? Okay, yes. Eve moved in too. <laughs> okay, so. And that's so funny because I've gotten like five messages today because of that. It's the craziest thing in the world. And he's thriving because of it. He's thriving. Okay, so 
quickly because we are running out of time. But who's Louie? I see him. Louie was, a, Louis was, I got him from Allenville. It was a family that was never supposed to have a pig. So Louie, uh, we got him from Allenville. It was a family that was not allowed to have pigs. It was, it's a rule in the town. And fortunately, they fed him just about to death. So he's morbidly obese, hadn't walked in months. Our vet went there to do an exam on him and called me. He's like, you got to come pick up this pig. He's dying. We picked up Louie. Um, you know, he walked for a couple of days and then went down and hasn't walked in a couple of months. And we're doing a lot of therapies with him and getting him. He's receiving the best of the best. And uh, we really feel that he's only two and a half years old, that he will walk again very soon. And the other night, uh, about a week ago, Morty, our little tractor pig who we got locally as well, another obese boy broke into, I'm going to cry, broke into Louis Stahl and started sleeping with him. I didn't even know he was there. And so Morty uh, started sleeping with him and we found that Louie moving around a little more. And then uh, yesterday morning I went in cause I flip Louie all the time. So he doesn't get pneumonia and, you know, and we clean him and, and, you know, feed him and, and, uh, and I, someone started yelling at me and it was Eve and Eve's in there now too. So Eve and, and they're in like his little stall and I'm not, and he's driving cause I'll go in the morning and Louie won't be in the same position he was the night before, so he's moving, which is awesome. So whatever, and these pigs know, man, they know it's so cool, and they know he needed them, and they showed up, and it's awesome. And he's thriving. He's doing awesome. He's way more animated than he has been, and we're so happy. He's lost so much weight. He was double his normal weight, what he should be. Which He's, is what? What are we talking about? I mean, he was probably, he was close to 300 pounds. He should be about 120. Hmm. Well, these are beautiful stories and reminders of how we are all here together, all connected. And the more kindness we can share with each other, the better. 100%. 100%. The better everything will be. I'm just wondering if there's anything you want to take us out with. I mean, just, you know, have compassion. That's all I ask is, you know, have compassion for animals, for people, uh, for the planet. You know, that's really, you know, ah, I mean, I know it's not everybody doesn't agree, but go vegan, man. Go vegan. Love animals. There's no reason to eat them. You can't love an animal and eat it too. Thank you so much, Todd. Peace, love, and peace. Peace, love, and pigs. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Todd Friedman, who is the founder of Arthur's Acres Animal Sanctuary in Parksville, New York, in the Catskills. And I encourage you all to visit arthursacresanimalsanctuary.org. Meet the animals there. You can sponsor Katniss or Prim or Rue or King Carl. Tune in to Todd's live videos that are daily events that I really look forward to and uh, give, give me so much every day. So thank you, Todd, for everything that you do. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. The animals of the world exist for their own reasons. They were not made for humans any more than black people were made for white or women created for men. Animals can communicate quite well, and they do. And generally speaking, they are ignored. Alice Walker. The greatness of a nation and its moral progress can be judged by the way its animals are treated. Mahatma Gandhi. From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artell's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artell. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels. This is Radio Catskill. We're your community radio station. We're going to pause between the two uh, halves of Trailer Talk. There's more Trailer Talk coming up in just a moment, but we do want to thank some more folks, and we definitely want to thank uh, a web contribution from Jan, who is making that contribution in honor of Sabrina Artel. So thank you so much to Jan. Also want to thank uh, listener David, says uh, loves WJFF, and a huge thanks for being quiet and not interrupting the morning news and democracy now. Thank you so much to David. And uh, who else here? Um, a number of folks, and uh, do do want to make sure that 
I didn't don't think I got all this, but Diane from TNC Salon in Monticello loves everything. The jazz programming Saturday morning. Uh, Kathy Geary's. Thank you so much to Diane, Debbie, and Ed in Liberty. Uh, Debbie liked what Josh Fox said. That's exactly how she feels. That's why she made the contribution. Uh, Jeff called in from Gramsville while I was interviewing Owen, and I didn't really get to talk much to Jeff, but thank you so much to listener Jeff. And uh, also we're from Morrison and Northeast PA. So thank you to everybody that's been chipping in. You uh, still have time to contribute if you like online at WJFFradio.org or um, here at uh, 845-482-4141. Um, I don't know exactly how much we have left to raise because I think I miscalculated and, and uh, I went into this break not having finished the recalculations, but it's looking like we're getting close to 550 we're in that neighborhood of what's still left to raise so it's not much every little bit goes a long way right now and another 500 dollars and change we will uh, meet this challenge maybe another 600 uh we'll meet the challenge and we'll get that extra five thousand dollars and that will end the pledge drive that's what i'm trying to say eight four five four eight two four one four one we're also pausing because we got a late breaking Public health advisory. I uh, haven't had time to uh, rewrite this, but I'll just tell you that there were two COVID-19 exposures at the government center in Monticello in Sullivan County. Um, and this is the government center's ballot counting. Uh, ballot counting may resume. And uh, public health. Here we go. Sorry. Public health services alerting anyone who visited Sullivan County government center lobby in Monticello and who may have been in close proximity to the ballot counting activity at the Board of Elections on the following dates and times may have been exposed to COVID-19. And that's this past Monday uh, between 3 p.m. and 4.45 p.m. and this past Tuesday between 9 a.m. and 10 a.m. possible COVID-19 exposure. Okay, without any further delay, let's get into the next installment of Trailer Talk right here on Radio Catskill. As we do, remember, we can end this pledge drive with your help. Give what you can at WJFFradio.org and or call in the, the next half hour or so here at 845-482-4141. Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline travel trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. I'm Sabrina and welcome to this virtual episode of Trailer Talk. I welcome you to the kitchen table of the travel trailers. We come together as community. My guests today are Sims Foster, who co-founded with his wife, Kirsten Harlow Foster, who founded Foster Supply Hospitality, a small hotel and restaurant company in the Sullivan County Catskills of upstate New York. We're going to be focusing on a single bite, which is the nonprofit organization founded by them. I will also be speaking with Audrey Garrow, who is the executive director of A Single Bite. We're going to talk about this food-based mission that was created to help feed our neighbors in the community. And I want to welcome you both to this virtual kitchen table of my trailer talk. I'd love for you, Sims, to begin with what is a single bite? How did this emerge from Foster Supply Hospitality? Well, Sabrina, it's great to see you. Um, we need to get you a trailer background, though, right? Yes. So that, you know, <laughs> I missed the trailer, but those times are coming again soon. Thank you for having us. To answer your question, a single bite started four years ago, over four years ago now, almost five. You know, Kirsten and I were looking uh, to fortify our commitment to the community, not just through opening businesses and, and trying on the, on the private sector, uh, but also looking on how we deepen uh, value to the community. It really resonated with me and then with us, uh, Kirsten and I, about doing something uh, to counteract the fact that Sullivan County, the place we love so much, continually ranked 61st out of 62 in the annual rankings of health. And as I skimmed through uh, that document and saw 
you know, access to health healthcare and transportation, all things that I know about, but really have no business trying to uh, affect. I don't have any expertise in it. Uh, I got to the food part and I said, ah, you know, if there's one thing I know, I think at this point it's food. And so that's where we focused and we saw the immense food insecurity issue that was happening in our county. And we said, well, maybe there's something we can do about that. And so we started an educational program in Livingston Manor Central School, where I graduated a long time ago. My father, uh, Barry, graduated um, in 1960. My mother was a first grade teacher for 36 years at the school. And so it just became natural to go and talk to, talk to the school and say, hey, how about doing a program where we come in and, and talk to students, um, not just once, not twice, but put together a real curriculum where we just talk to them about the choices between real food and processed food and really underline the fact that they have a choice, that what they put in their mouths is entirely up to them, that they don't get fed at the kitchen table anymore. At the time, Kirsten and I had our first child who was, you know, I was feeding him at the kitchen table. And when I used that one with the eighth graders, they all laughed. And I said, so you do choose. You do choose daily, multiple times over and over again. So we built a curriculum around uh, that. We hope to follow the students, not just for that one class or four classes, where we talk to them about food in, in the school. We brought them to our, uh, one of our restaurants to serve them lunch. And then we also brought them to New York City uh, to have lunch with a celebrity chef friend of mine because they're on TV. It matters more what they say. So why not? Um, so uh, our friend Jeffrey Zakarian, uh, our friend Dale Talday, we were lining up Marcus Samuelson for this year. You know, that's the program and that's where we started. So about four years ago, that's when a single fight began. And how have you adapted? What happened when the pandemic hit? I'm going to throw this to Audrey, but I'm going to set her up first, though, right? Okay, um, right prior to the pandemic, last fall, just, just a, a year ago, a little over a year ago, uh, this wonderful human being, Audrey Garrow, who, who we had known, came and had a coffee and, and, and said, you know, I'm, I'm looking for the next thing in, in, in her life. And I said, oh, well, I, we at that point were just in Livingston Manor. And so we robustly last fall said, set this goal to get to every eighth grader with our educational program in Sullivan County. So all this energy went into that and Audrey was well on her way and she was fundraising and we were figuring out complicated logistics. And then guess what? No more school. <laughs> and what was in front of us was where we have been the last six months um, and so I'll, I'll throw it to Audrey and let her go from there. Wonderful. Thank you, Sims. I'd like to share with our listeners that the number of meals that you've prepared and deliver, is it up to 50,000 at this point? That's right. 50,000 servings between March and, and just last week, we, we came to that milestone. And it has been uh, quite a journey from where we were serving single bites of food in the classroom to students um, exposing them to new foods and encouraging them to try new things and also to understand uh, the value of, of real food to where we realized that there were entire families who were struggling to put food on the table. So that shift and, and the relationship that we had with the, the school districts in a, a very um, a rural uh, county where transportation is an issue and where students found themselves not only removed from the classroom and their colleagues and their, their peers and their teachers, but also the nutrition that they normally would get in the cafeteria. And in some cases, students who who were um, taking backpacks of food home on the weekends. So we look at maybe 20% of the families in this county that were already experiencing food insecurity and how that was impacted by COVID, people losing their jobs. As I said, students not having access to the nutrition that they really counted on in the schools. I think the other thing that's really interesting and admirable is that Kirsten and Sims um, in their foster supply properties, they had committed to keeping all of their employees on the payroll. 
when COVID hit. And so as Sims is want to say, people in the, in the culinary business, um, having cooks not cooking, idle hands is not a good idea. So Sims and Kirsten quickly um, asked uh, their chefs to start cooking for these families that really needed food. And we started to identify in partnership with the school districts, with school nurses, with social workers and teachers, people who really knew these families and, and who was at risk for real hunger in our county. And we uh, basically started putting food on buses where we could. Uh, school work was going out. Um, there were breakfast and lunch sandwiches going out to these families. But what we started to send were prepared restaurant quality dinners. And those dinners were designed to feed families of up to five people. And if there were teenage boys in the household, or if there were extra people, mouths to feed, grandparents, we sent them two meals. And, and, and in most cases, we were sending two meals a week up until the school closed for the summer in June. At that point, we continued uh, full force with the program, um, partnering with volunteers up to 75 volunteers who really took the place of those school buses and made sure that we got food out to people who, as the summer went on, were experiencing unemployment for the first time in their lives. They also had their kids home 24-7, no camp, um, obviously, uh, you know, so, no summer school. And people, I think, really started to to struggle with how how they were, they were going to figure out not only how to get food, they were making decisions, hard decisions between gas money, rent money, and money to actually feed their families. So filling those gaps and having, helping to address food insecurity really became as core to our mission as, as providing uh, information and, and inspiration about real food. As this program with a single bite has expanded and as you've become increasingly aware of the food insecurity, the needs, the struggles of so many of our community members. Have you shifted in the way you're thinking about the intersections of needs within the community and how you, through a single bite and through the umbrella, foster supply hospitality, can somehow re-envision how our community's needs are served? It's a great question, um, and the answer is is absolutely. You know, it started reading this report and seeing food insecurity. I'll be honest; I regret deeply that I put that in a place of of academic, of something that existed, um, but I had no I had no connection to it in re, in my reality. And so the pandemic came and what became an acute problem because people, as Audrey said, well, just going out was an issue. Uh, so that's, we, we were reaching out like, like many in the country. Thank God we were reaching out. What we did was, it was what it was, but many, many were doing it in many forms. Um, and that's, was wonderful. But once we saw the real issue here and that this was issue, an issue before that acute period, and it's going to be after. I couldn't put my head back in the sand. And so there is a visceral, immediate need that everybody in Sullivan County, you, Sabrina, me, Audrey, everybody lives very close to someone who tonight may go to bed with not enough food and is not sure of what tomorrow brings. And that just simply cannot be. I don't know how to fix it nationally or globally, at least not yet, but I know that we can fix it in Sullivan County. Um, we now know uh, about the problem, but we also know how to get get it, the food produced and how to get it to people. And this is a complicated logistical problem, but we're becoming very good at it. And so our march is now to eradicate anyone going to bed in Sullivan County with a food insecurity as fast as we can, and then also educate continually for the long term, because we're here for the long term, so that people are better prepared, the next generation is better prepared to hopefully never be in that place. And so that's what we're doing. You know, we faced that choice after the acute period, and the decision-making process lasted about 
45 seconds uh, to say, even amidst of figuring out how we're going to, you know, run our company and do everything else that we're doing, this, this can't fall. It can't be just a chapter, right? This has got to be a novel that gets to the last page with a, with a conclusive end to this problem. And you're describing, Sims, a feeling of interconnectedness, of uh, an awareness that hit you hard. That, as you said, one of my neighbors, your neighbors, Audrey's neighbors, people listening, there are people all around us who are suffering. And I agree, it's, it's absolutely unacceptable. And now that the situation has become so extreme and the pandemic has raised our awareness to these acute issues of, of struggle and deficit for so many of us. I am wondering, Sims, and then Audrey as well, what is it in you? Sims, I knew your father, Barry Foster. He was beloved in Sullivan County and then Livingston Manor, New York, where you grew up. You have talked about him as part of this legacy for your company and also for this aspiration to bring more connectedness and possibility. So I'm wondering if you can share with us something about that. Well, you did know my father. And so his presence is with us, with me for sure. I I know that Audrey knew my dad and and, and so many did. And, And as a lifelong educator, as a lifelong teacher, as a someone who looked at everybody as an equal, um, regardless of background, race, economics, uh, people were people to him. And more than ever, that it reminds me of how lucky I was to be informed by uh, a man like that, and certainly my mother as well. So, you know, this, this just feels like it's what it's supposed to be. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's not about I. It's, a, it's about we. What's important in life is that you're here in service to others. You know, a lifelong Rotarian, as was my grandfather, you know, who, you know, the the Rotarian model, it's so simple, right? Service above self. These are things that people live with. And and in small communities, I think it's easier to find and it's easier to rally. Um, Although I I don't know that I should make that judgment. I guess that's my background on it. But um, you know, that's why this, we're doing this. It's because it needs to get done and we seem to be the right people for this particular task to help our community. And it really isn't much more complicated, but I'm very anxious to hear Audrey's answer too. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Audrey. Just in the way of of background, I've been in the not-for-profit sector all of my career in healthcare, in the arts. And as, as Sim said, was really looking for a way to connect more deeply with my community. I've lived in Sullivan County now for almost 20 years and, and was looking to, to find a way, as cliche as it seems, to really make a difference, to affect the life, the quality of life, the, the outlook on, on, on the future of individuals that, that were my neighbors and to use the skill set that I have to also empower other people to understand their capacity for affecting, affecting others around them. And <laughs> it's been, um, I can say, deeply fulfilling uh, personally, but over and above that, those 50,000 meals, those are bellies that we filled. Those are our hearts that we help to understand that someone cares They're not just children, you know, they're grandmothers who worry about feeding their kids. We have focused on on children, certainly because of of where our roots are in in terms of education, but we're now feeding veterans who don't have the capacity to cook for themselves. We are feeding people who are, um, are maybe transient or in a situation that they've never been in before where where they, they don't have access maybe to a food pantry or to some of the services that, that others can access, which are limiting in themselves in terms of the, the nutritional value of food that's out there. What we're able to do in terms of filling people's hearts and stomachs is, 
is really a matter of pride and, and the fact that, that Sims and Kirsten um, have engaged every corner of the community, every corner of their company in this pursuit to, to take care of their neighbors is um, it helps me to, to feel like I can go out and ask anybody to help us, any volunteer, anybody who has a truck, anybody who has some extra vegetables. And we, we really do benefit from the entire community in terms of being able to deliver directly to people's households. And I will say this, there's been times when a volunteer couldn't deliver food and I've gotten in my car with a couple of meals and knowing that there is not an adult present in a household and having that door open and seeing a child's face and having them put their hands out and putting food in their hands is, um, it's probably the greatest gift that anyone can give to themselves really other than cooking for your family or, or gardening and, and being able to grow a vegetable yourself to be able to feed your neighbor that can that can take you a long way in your life in terms of uh, the happiness bank. You're describing a love for our neighbors, for our community. I'm wondering if, because there are so many separations in this county between those who have and those who don't, and there's huge space in between, I'm just, and because you have access to both, how are you, Sims and Audrey, thinking about this in terms of a possible way to integrate those who may have more with those who have less in terms of a more inclusive community? Well, I think one of the ways is as we start to talk to people about the need to raise money to be able to do what we do, and, and, and we really solicit contributions being very upfront about the fact that we just need money for food and packaging. The rest of it, volunteers and, and the generosity of the fosters and, and others in the community, kind of that takes care of itself. But when you start to talk to donors, and these are people who do have a little bit of, of income, and they certainly are interested in philanthropy to some degree, those people are the same people that say to us, I want to volunteer. I want to deliver meals. I want to see not only where my dollars are going, but I want to feel the good work in a very real way. And so that's one way that we connect. I would also remark on the fact that there are people that, that visit foster supply properties that don't even live in Sullivan County, but who have an appreciation for the beauty and, and as I said, the quality of life that, that is possible here. They're very generous. You know, they understand that that they've had an exceptional experience. They also look to their left and their right when they're driving up and down the streets and they see, you know, the beautiful home and then they see the home that maybe they, they wonder who lives there. And so their, their eyes are open, those visitors, as are the employees who are cooking with us, who are uh, talking to their guests about what the company is committed to. And so I think in that way, that, that connectivity does happen. It happens with school teachers who go and have, you know, dinner maybe once, once in a while at, at a property. And, and then um, we'll go back and talk to their entire school uh, about their teachers association, about making a gift because they get it. They get it. And so I think it happens quite organically in a way, just because of the nature of, of the county and also the people that visit here and live here. Yeah, you know, I, I bought I bought myself some time there. So, <laughs> yeah. no. good job, Audrey. Thank you. <laughs> no, what she said was spot on to help me formulate my. I've never been involved with another not for profit. I've been too busy, I guess, you know, figuring out the other side. So I don't have any reference. But what has struck me is we do have wealthy people that have donated to a single bite. And we have people who are certainly not wealthy. To see the range, as you said, from one to the other and everything in between, the person that mows my mother's yard and then a family whose name is synonymous in American history with extreme wealth, donating in Sullivan County to this cause, leads me to believe that there is something about the idea of our neighbor needing and needing food, right? Needing tonight, 
more in their belly resonates in a human resonates in everyone's humanity. And again, I don't know if other places have that same, maybe they do. My naivety led me to see that how powerful it was to see the notes from all the different segments to say, I get it. I get it. Here's how I can help. I can help with $5. I can help with $5,000 and, and a commitment to this community from every different segment from people here, as Audrey said, 36 hours, the people here, 36 months, the people here, 36 years, everyone feeling committed uh, to solving this problem in the community. How can people donate? Definitely a singlebite.org. It's a singlebite.org. Um, if you're in Sullivan County, you can stop by the Claire at, at our offices, uh, Foster Supply, where we're using the kitchen to make all this food now. Uh, with a check, um, you can mail it to... You can mail it to P.O. Box 595, Youngsville, New York, 12791. <laughs> <laughs> Every way. So you can be anywhere Every. in the world, and you yes. certainly go to yeah. the website, asinglebite.org. And before we wrap up, Audrey and Sims, just a couple of sentences about what it is that you love about Sullivan County and why you're committed to improving the quality of life through your not-for-profit organization, A Single Bite. Look out the window every day, no matter what the season, <laughs> no matter um, what the activity is that's happening, um, whether it's the deer running by or the, the paving truck. Um, you know, there's, there's always some type of, of, of activity and industry happening here. And it's all driven by those very few people, actually, that live uh, within the county's borders. What do I love about living here? I love the fact that I have space to breathe. I love that I have access to healthy food. I love that my neighbors are caring for each other and, and for, for the environment as well, keeping beautiful what, what we all appreciate here. And over and above all of that, I, I love the sense of place and history and the fact that, that you can stay connected to, to the, the most modern and urban city in the world and be you know, less than two hours away and have the serenity of looking at the stars and, and listening to the, to the birds and at, at the same time you know, feel connected to the rest of the world because they're visiting us. And we can, we can go out and, and be a part of the world, too. Yeah, I concur. I think that we all live here. It's very hard to live here and not, not be inspired by the Earth's beauty, for sure. And so I, I agree with all of that. I also am motivated by the opportunity of the future of this county. Um, I deeply love the heritage. My family's been here for over 100 years. We're part of several chapters. But I would be lying to say that growing up here, loving it here, but being conflicted about why it wasn't progressing and using all of its amazing assets to become a more robust place uh, motivates me as well. I, I, I want to I retain what we all love and I want to add to it by demolishing, uh, by using the communities to demolish hunger, by creating an economic fabric for, that supports everyone and that, that we don't fall victim to the decimation that went on for a generation, uh, to create a foundation for this county that uh, honors it but also moves it forward. Um, it's a place that I love and that I also see so much more that we can all be doing. And there's a great satisfaction to me, hopefully at the end saying, look what we did. I want to thank you both for joining me at this virtual kitchen table and for sharing your mission, your commitment, your love for your community in Sullivan County, New York, and your focus with a single bite which is tackling food insecurity in our community. And certainly this is something that 
is being faced throughout the country. So I want to thank you both. I've been speaking with Sims Foster, who's the co-founder of Foster Supply Hospitality, a small hotel and restaurant company based in the Sullivan County, Catskills of New York, and Audrey Garrow, who is the executive director of A Single Bite. To find out more about A Single Bite, please go to their website. There's incredible information there at asinglebite.org. Thank you both. Thanks, Sabrina. Thank you. You're welcome. From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artell's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artell. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations.